I don't think we'll ever always automatically include everybody because we don't see everybody and we have to learn how to do that. But I think the more we do it, the more intuitive and easy that will become. Welcome to The Collective Table, the ultimate female perspective on Jesus, justice, and joy with your hosts, Chelsea Simon, Dana Black, and Claire Watson. We're so glad that you're here for this seventh season called the Sermon Podcast Hour. During this season, Chelsea, Claire, and I are going to interview some of our favorite preachers about a sermon they've given. These sermons will be following the lectionary calendar from Epiphany all the way until Easter. In the various episodes, not only will you hear clips from the sermon, you will also get to hear the follow-up conversation with the preacher. Each preacher brings their own unique experiences, interpretations, and preaching styles. Our hope is to provide a well-rounded and expansive view of the scriptures, God, and ourselves. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, Collective Table listeners. Chelsea here. I am so excited about today's episode, not only because it's super thoughtful and inspiring, but because Reverend Denise Barnes is one of my closest friends and favorite pastors. Reverend Denise is the Director of Justice and Compassion Ministries for the California Pacific Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. Born and raised in the UK, her first degree was in electronics and telecommunications engineering. After following a career in computing and teaching and special education, she traveled extensively throughout Asia and Australia, teaching English as a second language. In 2003, she settled in California. Denise has served churches in Ojai, Hollywood, and Crescenta Valley. She has also served as the LGBTQIA advocacy coordinator for the conference for the last three years. Denise has a heart for justice and equity for all. She works hard at dismantling systems of oppression and rebuilding them into fair, equitable, and just ways of being. She's been married to her wife, Deborah, since 2020. And fun fact... I was honored enough to co-officiate the blessing of their marriage. Deborah and Denise are both avid Dodger fans, and they share their home with two dogs, Jiminy and Sheldon. I hope you enjoy this conversation just as much as we did. Welcome to the podcast, Collective Table listeners. Today is a very exciting day for me personally. It's my joy to welcome my friend and colleague, Reverend Denise Barnes. Denise, we're so grateful that you're here with us today. I'm very excited to be with you. Thank you. So I thought we'd jump off the conversation with your role at the in the Methodist Church at the California Pacific Annual Conference. Yeah. Director of Justice and Compassion Ministries. Can you tell us a little bit about what does that mean and what, what do you do? Sure. So it's it's quite a big role in terms of, of the diversity it covers. But basically, I handle and help coordinate all of the justice and compassion ministry work that is done by the churches and other entities within our annual conference, which is around 400 churches. So I coordinate a number of strategy groups that help churches with resources and information around areas such as hunger, housing and homelessness, 
disaster response, eco-justice, immigration, any of those kind of issues that come up that people have a passion about. I help them create a team. I help them launch that team and, and facilitate the work that they do in terms of making it a resource for other churches. So the idea is that if one church is doing it, let's teach the others how to do it too, rather than everybody trying to do it from their own little silos. Very cool. How long have you been doing this? full-time since July of this year and and I did it as a 50% appointment for the year before along with a church appointment which made both of them pretty hard to manage because it's so much work to yeah. do each one so the first year was really just a, a firefighting and, and I was supposed to share the role with somebody else but it ended up just being me so it was a lot to take on. Well let's jump into the sermon here and maybe set up the stage a little bit where were you who was the congregation kind of set the stage for us a little bit. So I was, this was when I was appointed to Crescenta Valley United Methodist Church, which is in Montrose, really sort of Glendale, Pasadena area. I was the sole pastor, but only appointed 50% of the time. And we were doing a sermon series called Purple Theory during Lent about spiritual practices and how we can use the Lent period to really hone and, and start to use those resources in a better and more meaningful way as we journeyed through Lent. We probably should start with a little bit of what is Lent. And like, I don't know if people know that. Denise, will you share with us what is Lent? So Lent is is practically is the 40-day period um, leading up to Easter and um, the resurrection of Jesus. And it's a time for us to really dig deep into who Jesus was, what Jesus's message was for us, what that means for us today, and how do we live out our faith? So there are many different ways that people serve in Lent. A lot of people go very, very spiritual and down um, that path. A lot of people um, take it as a time for extra service, for more prayer, for more worship type um, environments. I like to do a mixture of all of it. There used to be um, a brilliant resource online, which was a calendar of Lent, and each day was broken up into different things. So one day you would do service. So one day you would take some food to the local dog shelter, right? And the next day you would meditate on a piece of scripture, the next day you would pray, and then you go back to service and it would cycle through. And that was a really good time for me to be really intentional about it and to make sure that it was a whole period. And not to say that you shouldn't do it outside of Lent, but Lent is a real time to prepare for that, the glorious resurrection of Christ and what it means to us as Christians. And it changes every year, right? Because our circumstances change and, and we change and our experience is different. So for us, a, a Lent is a journey. It's a 40 days we walk to walk through where we understand what happened on a, on a different level for us as Christians and how what that means to us and going forward. Do you know what you're going to do for Lent this year? I have no idea because I don't have a local church right now. So... I'm not sure. I won't be planning anything big. I may see if I can make a calendar because that would be a great conference resource because I can mention that's a really good idea. Thanks, Chelsea. I can't help but notice you're talking about this sermon series, Purple Theory, and your hair is purple. Right. That's why I chose the name of the sermon. <laughs> I love purple it. is particularly a meaningful color for me. Um, I'm known for my purple hair. Um, I love it. And, and one of the reasons I latched onto it was many, many years ago when lesbians couldn't be out in society, they would wear lavender so that they would recognize each other. And I think that's pretty cool. So um, I continue that tradition. Wow, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's really cool. Scripture's purpose, of course, is not condemnation. 
It's not simply a list of do's and don'ts. When we think of the Bible as only one thing, for example, that list of do's and don'ts, we minimize its value for the whole of our lives. Scripture is life-giving and life-sustaining. It's not a quick fix or a fad diet. Studying Scripture is a lifestyle change. People will be listening or will be in Lent when this episode comes out. One of the things that you really talk about in this sermon is the use of scripture. And so how can people, if you just give them kind of like the nutshell, how can people use scripture during Lent to deepen their spiritual practice, their faith, their relationship with God? What are some tips? Well, you know, scripture's hard because you look at the Bible and you think, oh my goodness, there's so much in here. Where do I start? Do I just dive in? What what do I do? So, you know, the lectionary is a great tool for helping with that because it tells you what, what scriptures to read at a certain time of year. And it takes you through a three-year cycle of, of really going through the Bible. So I, I recommend to people that use the lectionary, find what the scripture reading is and, and sit with that. And I think what's really important is that there's no wrong way to do it, right? There's no wrong way to read scripture. It just depends where you're at at that time as to what message you receive from it. Um, and I think that's really important. So to read a piece of scripture and sit with it and see what it, where it's speaking to you. I read different versions, different translations, because sometimes different messages come from those translations. And I like to do it first thing in the morning and then go back to it maybe later on in the day, because you never know what's happened during the day, what, what guidance you can receive from it or what messages you might get. And so to go back to it throughout the day is a really grounding tool. Certainly it helps me in terms of where am I at and what am I doing and, and what's happened and, and how am I using that to guide my day? You talk in your sermon about how we have things in our lives that shift in meaning over time, kind of like, did you like coffee when you were six? No. Can you tell us a little bit more about how scripture has shifted and evolved for you over your life and, and your relationship to it? We all have things in our lives that shift in meaning over time, or things towards which our attitudes change. For example, who liked coffee when they were six years old? Taste, skills and relationships change and develop over time with experience and practice. But we have to spend time with something on a consistent basis for its true potential to develop in our lives. Meaning, of course, that our relationship with God needs time and attention through Scripture, just as our relationship with others needs time and attention through communication, presence, and care. That's a great question. I grew up in England, so Church of England predominantly, and my parents were atheists, so we didn't go to church. It wasn't part of our life, but in England, church and state are not separate. So our schools, we learn about church in schools. We learn about um, Christianity in schools because that's the main religion of England. I went to a church that was a Church of England school. So it was very much a part of our lives. We had to do religious education right through until we were 14, I think. So very much influenced by the Church of England and not having the access at home to be able to talk about that because my parents were very anti the church and the establishment of the church. I really explored that by myself at school. And when I was about 13, a friend of mine was singing in a, a choir, a youth choir at the local Methodist church. So she invited me to go uh, along and I became a part of that church, a very big part of that church. This, this youth choir was really unusual for its time. There was about 30 kids from 
I was one of the youngest, up to about 18. We had keyboards and a drum and a guitarist, and we cut a record and we would go touring around England and sing in parks and things for people. And it really gave me access to faith in a different way. I started to explore a little bit more, but of course the overriding message of all of these churches was that if you are of the LGBT family, then church really wasn't for you because you weren't to be included in it. So it really wasn't until I accepted who I was and who God had created me to be that I realized that God loved me exactly as I was anyway. And then when you read scripture, it's a whole different thing because you're not reading something that says this isn't for you. You're reading something that says this is for you. And and it totally changes how you read it and what it means to you and, and how it shapes your life. We just did the installation service for the bishop and I was asked to participate. And part of that installation service is to present the bishop with her staff, her gavel, um, communion element. And they asked me which one I wanted to give her. And I chose mm. the Bible because it's been used against me yeah. so much. But because I believe it's such a powerful tool and it is the word of God and it is our path through life, I wanted to be the one to give it to her because I think that's far more powerful a message than a gavel to use the book for the book of discipline, which has caused so much harm to me, even more so than the Bible, really. I think a lot of our listeners are looking for ways to make the shift like you're talking about, Denise, that the Bible is the story of God for us and with us. And so I think what people have trouble with maybe sometimes, and I know I struggled with this, was how can you take something that you've read for so long, or maybe you're just starting to, but like, what are what are ways that people can read the Bible contextually, historically, that can kind of like understand a little bit better what is trying to be communicated? Like you were just talking about like the scripture that talk about anti-LGBTQ and how, how can people relearn that maybe? Sure. So there's a couple of different answers to this. So remind me that I have another one. But the first one is I was thinking about this this morning and Think about Shakespeare. You know, I grew up in England, so we had to study Shakespeare at school. And if you read Shakespeare today, you're like, what the heck is he talking about? What's going on? The language is different. The context is different. The culture is different. So take Romeo and Juliet, right? This love story that we all know. And then look at West Side Story, the movie West Side Story. It's Romeo and Juliet, but in a more modern context. And then they just remade it again. I don't know why they did, but they remade it again in a different context with a different audience and and you know our context is different our language is different our culture is different we are different we know more we have more knowledge of science and history so if you read the bible thinking of that then i think it helps you understand mm. that it was written by a certain person for a certain purpose in a certain period of time in a world where people had a certain level of knowledge so the messages are still there for us. One of the best things I do when I do a confirmation class is I take some parables and I give the kids the parables and say, write me a play, do me a play that's based on that parable so that they bring it up to their own context. And it's one of the most powerful lessons that the kids can learn because all of a sudden they get the point of the story because it's in language and situations that they understand. So, you know, I truly believe the Bible is a message for all of us, but I believe we have to try and, and say, well, okay, that was what they knew then. What do we know now and how does that apply to us? And the other thing that I was going to come back to was that there are different translations of the Bible, right? So different people have picked up the Bible and they've translated it in different ways and at different times. The word homosexuality, for example, was never in the Bible until 1949. It never appeared in there. 
And so it was put in there by somebody who wanted to teach their children that homosexuality was a sin. So, um, and he homeschooled them. Um, and that was the Good News Bible, which was then given to every single child in America when they were in school. And therefore, that's how it got there and how it, it allowed, it was culture driving it, right? And then the church supported it. And then it became the church driving it and, and not culture supporting it. So be careful what you read and how you read it. And always understand that this is someone's interpretation of a language that we don't have all of the words for anymore. You know, the word arsenikoi, which is the, the word that has become homosexual, we don't know what that word means exactly. We know it's about power and structure. But if someone that was doing some research into the NRSV translation found two lists of sins that Paul had made, and in one side were sins of power, right, where you abuse power, and the other was sins against people. And the word arsenikoi was in the, sin, the power sins, not the people sins. So we know really in the context of about people, it was about don't be in power in relationships where there's an imbalance of power. So old men and, and young boys don't do that. Right. You know, um, abusive men and a harem of women don't do that. Do stuff that that's where it's an equal and loving and open relationship. So I think people have to understand that. And there are commentaries that help. There's a queer commentary, which is an excellent resource, which really helps you read through it from a different lens. So I think those are, those are different ways to find it more accessible and applicable to people today. It's such a necessary shift in how we approach scripture, I think. What I'm hearing you say is it's less about, you know, reading instructions and more about being a part of God's story. You know, with you talking about the kids in confirmation, putting themselves in that story, like being able to see yourself in that and, and becoming a part of that, which is, I mean, what when we talk about the kingdom of God, that that's what that is. I. I'm being reminded my childhood Bible, I had an acrostic poem written in the front that my Sunday school teacher must have told us about. It was B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instructions oh Before Leaving Earth. <laughs> I, so then that, that will just tell you how, you know, how I was formed to think about the Bible and how I thought about the Bible for so much of my, my life and coming into this different stream of thought thinking it's so much more than that is, is such a beautiful thing. It really is. Yeah. And it really is applicable to all of us in different ways. And you also have to remember that certain messages were amplified by the church because it suited the church, right? So original sin and whether or not we are born in a sinful state was something that the church wanted to perpetuate in Roman times because it kept people under control. It kept people frightened of a fit of a God who was angry rather than a God of love who created us all in love and who we are all a part of. Right. And if we're a part of God, how can we be born sinful? It just it doesn't make sense. So um, you have to remember all of that when you're accessing it. It's a lot. <laughs> and I think giving people permission to, you know, there's the common phrase, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And so giving people permission, and you do this in your sermon when you show the movie and people's different interpretations of what happened in the movie, and to understand that you're not just, the Bible doesn't just say something. There's all these layers, right? There's language translations, there's context, there's context, there's author, but then there's also, we bring ourselves to the scripture, right? Like we bring our own lens, our own experience. And in the Methodist church, we have a funny word called the quadrilateral, which kind of helps us to do that. <laughs> 
and not that this is a ordination interview, but uh, maybe you could talk through the quadrilateral a little bit and help our audience understand other components that can help us interpret scripture. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so the quadrilateral is scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. So those are the things on which we base our decisions. So for example, if you have a question and you want to apply it to something, you use the quadrilateral to help you come to a, a, an answer that guides you. I think for my ordination interview, I used women in as, as pastors, as clergy, as an example of, of, of why um, and how it works. Um, so scripture says that women should be subservient to men and should not be leaders of the church except it also says that Paul was writing letters to various women who were leaders in the church, right? There's there's conflict there. Tradition dictates that women were not leaders in the church, although we had desert mothers and fathers and we had nuns, um, active laity who, who did an awful lot for the church and for religion. Reason is we are women. We know now that our brains are as capable as men's, if not more so in different ways. And so, and our own experience tells us that we have received spiritual care, guidance, love, and leadership from women. So therefore using all of those different things to say, should women be pastors or not? It's very clear that they should because they have the gifts and graces that while they may not be the same as men's are certainly complementary and, and can be applied to a pastoral care role. I love that explanation. And it's almost like if we're just looking at scripture without all of these other factors included, we're, we're not really doing it justice. Right. The Bible is the infallible word of God, right? That's what we're taught. And it is, but in a place and a time. Mm -hmm. If we were to be inspired to write the Bible now, it would be a very different story, I think, because it would be in our context and to our understanding. But that doesn't mean that the messages that are in there are not applicable to us today and how we should live our lives, because the whole point, particularly of the New Testament, is this is how Jesus did it. This is what you are called to do. This question just came to me. I often wonder, the Bible's a closed book, right? The last chapter is Revelation. And how, how do you feel about that? Yeah, so is it the UCC that has that that slogan, God is still speaking? I love that. Yeah, right. I, I think I have a shirt that says God is still speaking because God didn't go away and God is in all of us and God is here on earth with us and we are still called to follow that example. So, you know, I have problems with Revelation. I don't know what it what value it adds in terms of, of following the path of Jesus or, or what. And I don't think I don't think it's the end. I mean, it's still going on. We're still part of creation. I think it would be the end if we'd learned what to do, but I don't think we have, you know, so um, we're still called to be those people um, and we will always be called to be those people. God didn't just give up and walk away when Revelation was written and say, okay, that's it, peace out, I'm done, you know. We still see evidence of God working in all of our lives all the time. And yeah, I don't think the Revelation was the end of the Bible, not at all. I'll never forget when I, I was a religious studies major in college and I remember telling a older family member that I was studying that. The first thing he said was, well, that's so easy. Everything, all the answers are already there for you. <laughs> and I remember just sitting there being so confused at what he meant because I was in this time of soaking up, you know, not just the Christian scriptures, but so many different other types of religion and their their holy texts and thinking like, no, it's it's quite the opposite of that. Exactly. I mean, the more you read it, the more questions you have, right? And I've just started reading and literally I've just started it, the lost books of the Bible, right? I've never sat down and read them. These are the books that didn't make it that, that the 70 men who gathered decided weren't going in there. And they are, there's some amazing stories in there. There's the background story of Mary, 
right? You know, and her parents, and it's beautiful. And it never made it in there. But I don't think that means it wasn't the inspired word of God also at the time. And I think we have a lot to learn from reading those books and then and, and using those. So yeah, and but I always feel like every time I read a piece of scripture that it's different to the last time. And and like you said, Chelsea, because of your context and, and where you are and what experiences you're having and, and all the rest of it, that you get a different message every time. So it's not the end, you know, you just keep reading it. And, and for wherever you are, and whatever you need to hear, you can find it in there um, by going to it. I, my question for you is though, you know, we we all agree on this, and I'm sure all three of us would also agree on inclusivity and you know inviting different people's perspectives, especially when we're talking about God and it coming to the scriptures. But where do you draw the line when it comes to inclusivity with scriptural interpretation? Because there's so many different ways to look at scripture and. The hardest thing for me is if I'm going to say I want to be inclusive of different perspectives, there's some that I'm like, no, I, you know, I, I don't think that's, that's appropriate. I think that's harmful. Yeah, that's tricky, right? I mean, that's always, that's really tricky. Um, but we have to remember that everyone is a beloved child of God. Everybody has God in them. There's a beautiful Celtic tradition that believes that we all have this thread of gold running through us. And that when we lose touch with God, so when we start being sinful because we're not in line with God, it's because we've let go of the thread. And I think that's really beautiful, right? It's it's just wonderful. But we can agree to disagree with people and we can walk away from harm, right? We don't have to be put ourselves in the place of harm. And I think this is one of the big problems of the church today is that it's caused so much harm to so many people that people have walked away and it's not relevant to them anymore. And we need to find a way to help those people access their spirituality and find it and and really you know I mean we're right in the middle of a schism in the United Methodist Church and there's a lot of hateful words going on and it's basically it's purported to be over um, biblical interpretation I believe it's more about power and control but that's the excuse that's being used I'm saddened by the schism but I think it's needed I think it's time that we we just went our separate ways for now I have no doubt that they'll come back together in some form or, or other at some time in the future. But for right now in, in this space, we need to be apart. We cannot fix all of it for everybody. These people have been taught for years and years and years that this is what the Bible says. This is the truth. This is um, ingrained in them. And, you know, if you look at the places we colonized where we went and took Christianity and we taught them this. And now we're saying, oh, wait, that's not quite what it, how it was. You, we can't expect people to, to pivot that quickly. So let people go about, to, if they're not doing harm, then they can go and do what they're doing. If they're doing harm, then I think we are called to respond in certain ways. My call is to, to show the people that feel that they've been excluded from the church because of their sexuality or gender identity, that, that that's not a thing, right? Here I am working through God and with God in my role. I've been called to, I've answered that call. God loves me and God loves them just as much. So let's provide a space for them to learn and grow and flourish. And maybe that will help the people that aren't sure to realize that, oh gosh, look at what these people are doing. They're showing love and, you know, so do it by example because Jesus did. Jesus showed them what to do. And if we follow that example, then I think it will help. I think one of the other problems is, and I, I hate to say this because of your name, but it's the table thing. There's a table. Tables are only a certain size. And no matter how big a table you imagine, it's still got a limited size. And one of the biggest problems in the church right now is that people are still begging for a seat at the table and they shouldn't be. However inclusive you feel you are. I was just at the Western Jurisdiction Annual Conference and the Hawaii contingent stood up and said, we shouldn't still have to be asking to sit at your table. It should just be there. 
But of course, we make these committees that form a table that are a certain size, and that doesn't include everybody. And we have to find a better way of doing that. That doesn't mean that we're begging to be included, right? It should just be, if you if this is your passion, you want to do this, come along, let's see what you can offer. And, and, and you know, who knows what we might learn from the people that we haven't invited. Where have you seen that in practice? I haven't. I haven't seen it in practice. It's my ideal. I just completed my thesis for my doctorate and I just presented it. And my thesis is a new structure for the United Methodist Church post-schism based on the structure of Celtic Christianity. And, and basically it's mission-based churches rather than churches created just for worship and then everything comes off of that. It's churches created for service and in a circle with other churches, other agencies that are non-profits and other people that are doing work to help others, including other faiths, right? That create this circle that becomes a hub of different cells that are doing different work, but they're doing it together and they're resourcing it together. And it's very local. So it's it's in the context of where the people are at. And it's led by laity, not clergy. There is no episcopacy other than to ordain and baptize and confirm, but no, no episcopal leadership in terms of structure and control. And then right next to that, geographically is another hub for that community. Now there can be links, so you can have hubs over the top of all of it that link those together. So if you're doing immigration, you could have a hub that reaches across the world with people that are working together on immigration and they're helping resource each other because together we're more powerful. So my idea for that is if you're called and you wanna be a part of it, come and join, but I haven't created yet. I'm working on it. I'm doing a small one here, but you know, I haven't done it yet. And I don't think we'll ever always automatically include everybody because we don't see everybody and we have to learn how to do that. But I think the more we do it, the more intuitive and easy that will become. Sign me up. <laughs> I have two things. One is, Denise, I always appreciate whenever you're talking, it's with this hopeful lens where I can see the like dream. And just because I know you so well, like you are a person that I don't want to say shouldn't be hopeful, but like you have been harmed by the church and you could take your pain and use it in a non-productive way. And it's always just so beautiful to me that you have just like flipped it to see it like through the lens of compassion and inclusion and grace. And it makes me believe you, you know, whenever you're like talking about hope, it's well, you're a person that like has been through hard times with the church, but that you still have this desire and drive and vision for what we could still be is just always so beautiful for me. Thank you. And I think a lot of that comes from growing up in a church where there wasn't anybody yeah. who looked like me and knowing how powerful that is. And I and I get the feedback now from the kids that, that go to the churches or access it, that there's young children, young adults who are offspring of clergy who won't even look me in the eye because they're queer. But when I talk to their parents, it's like, oh, they're in awe of you. Um, so they don't know what to say to you. They're too scared to speak to you, which, you know, is sad actually so i always make an, an effort to go over and speak to them but how powerful is that that they have somebody who looks like them in church doing church stuff and making change so i always try to make sure that i'm there that my voice is heard you know in terms of when harm is done hugely like last year at the florida annual conference that rejected so many because of two people who identified as queer that we took such a big stand about that at our annual conference the kids are watching and they're seeing that and they're our future they're our hope 
they've got to carry this on. And if I can do it despite all of that, then they can do it with all of that in so much more power than than I'm ever going to be able to do. One thing that, and, and this is maybe what Claire was asking at the beginning of the conversation, but I came back around when you were sharing about inclusion. And someone asked me when we were creating the table, would a racist be welcome in your space? And I had to think about it because mm-hmm. there are boundaries, right? Of Yes, you want everybody there and you want like to create the table longer and you want perspectives and you want this person who might even identify as racist to be shown a new way or to be loved and, you know, change their mind. But like, what is the boundary of that inclusion? At, at what point are there? And at what point do you say, how do you protect a community and people that have been harmed while still trying to like include if you're if that makes sense yeah it does it makes total sense and um yes it's a problem because yes i want to include everybody and i believe everybody should have a chance but there are boundaries you create always when you're with a group of people a covenant which is that you will love each other that you will look after each other that you will respect each other so everybody gets a chance to be a part of that right because even if they're racist they may be something else that, that is really valuable to your group and they may be at a stage where they could start to learn so yes but when they start to do harm then you you know they, they have to be removed from the situation when jesus sent the disciples out jesus said to them go to all the places right and and if you're made welcome stay but if you're not made welcome shake the dust off your shoes and leave right and if jesus said that then we should do the same we don't have to be harmed by other people we can say okay those are you've crossed my boundaries this is not the right place for you to be but we will continue to do the work that we're doing and, and they may come back they may actually respect you more for saying that than than not you know they may just want the chance to do more harm one of the practices you talk about in your sermon is one that we we try to do but lectio divina i wonder how many of you have ever heard of lectio divina It's a way of reading scripture and engaging a little deeper than we do when we listen to it being read during worship. What I find fascinating about doing it with a group of people is that there are many different interpretations of the scripture which is read. Different people get different messages from it. And especially during the time of Lent, I think that they just pair so nicely together. So I'm just Wondering if you could share what it is and what has been your experience using that practice. So Lectio Divina is is a kind of meditative practice where a piece of scripture is read to a group or individually multiple times with the target of, of really digging deep into what the scripture is telling you in that specific time and that specific moment. The joy of it is to be able to share with others what they are hearing because so often i'm in a group and a piece of scripture is read and people start to share what they've heard and it's nothing like what i've heard and it really highlights to me how we're all in such a different space and time in a moment that it speaks differently to us so i do it myself every morning as part of my morning routine i read scripture and i read more than one version and i read it to myself i read it out loud i even have one of those android voices that will read it to me you know so and then i sit with it i go back to it later in the day as i said earlier when i did it for that sermon it was really interesting because people were cautious first of all to share what they heard because you know there's that fear of uh, we don't speak during the sermon and I might be wrong. But when they started to do it, it really started to come out different words that people were hearing and and, and different messages they were receiving. And in, in our fellowship time afterwards, 
more and more came out as people started to talk in and it really became a conversation point. And somebody said to me, is this how you write a sermon? And it was really great that they started to understand that, you know, to, to write a sermon on a particular message, you've got to read the scripture multiple times in different translations and in different voices to really get to what you are being called to preach as a message that time. And I think it was really helpful. And I know a number of people now do that practice because they got so much out of it during that um, sermon. So I was really pleased with how it turned out. Had you ever done it during a sermon before? I thought that that was really unique. I would have been kind of scared too. <laughs> so no, I hadn't, um, but I was warned, I think when we were in seminary that be careful with doing that, right? Because if no one says anything, you've got a problem. So I did plant a uh. couple of people beforehand to have them start the conversation off. And, you know, I was ready with my like takes of, did anyone hear this? Or what about these words? These have been highlighted before. So, but yeah, it's a little bit of a scary thing to do. So plant someone in there who might answer for you, first of all. <laughs> That's a good tip. I did Lectio Divina in the confirmation class that I'm leading a couple weeks ago. And I had a very similar experience. They all said vastly different things, but I had to explain to them and help them process because they were, they were almost scared to say that they got different mm. things from the scripture and seeing it click for them that that's okay. That's how it's supposed to be. That's so beautiful. There was even one kid who, what he really got from it was just like, I'm confused. And I, I made him sit in that. I was like, that's okay. You know, it, you don't have to have it figured out. I'm glad that you, that you said that, but it was, it was a very unique experience. It would be interesting to go back a few weeks later and do it again with the same piece of mm -hmm. scripture and, and let them see that they get different things from it the second time or third time around. Yeah. I'll have to do that again and let you know. That's so interesting. Cause you know, I feel like we're supposed to read the Bible, like joyful and happy and like, and there's so many things in scripture <laughs> that are really hard, like that I have like reactions to of like, no or like so when people say the bible is boring i'm like are you reading it because it just it isn't just this like stepford wife like shut off from my own experience it's this very like interconnected and like all of our emotions are valid when we're reading scripture you know and it's all present in there because it's, it's human it's like this is what humanity's journey with god has looked like and so I, th I think to like take some of the preconceived notions off of like what it means to read scripture is helpful. Like even just giving people permission. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Be free to do this and to just go with whatever happens. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. I mean, I have, I don't know if you have your pieces of scripture you go to when you're feeling down or rejected or whatever, you know, I mean, so we all have those, but sometimes there's more power in not going to those, but going to something else and just seeing what does it say for me today and how can it help me figure out what I've got to do today. One of my favorite pieces of scripture is Jesus wept because every time I cry, I'm just like, it's fine. Jesus cried. Good. Yeah. Jesus did it. <laughs> right. <laughs> can you tell us about the actual scripture you used in the sermon from Psalm 1? Um, I can if I pull it up. <laughs> I, hold on, I have my Bible here too. I I I really love that piece of scripture. That it's actually one of the ones that I that I go to because it's just such a beautiful image. Maybe let's read it for the audience so they don't have to go driving and they don't have yeah. to get out your Bible. It was just one to three, right? So yeah, you want me to read it? Yes. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. 
We can think of scripture as the stream and the soil that we plant ourselves by and in. With time and consistency, scripture helps us to realign our lives, to be rooted and to grow. Imagine a tree that was always being uprooted and moved from place to place, or that was only ever given small amounts of water. It would never take root and it would never grow. It would never yield fruit. I mean, it's basically, it doesn't matter what anybody else says, right? You don't listen to what people are saying to you, what people are judging you, what, what people believe is sinful and what isn't. And, and don't, put, don't sit yourself in that situation. Don't put yourself in that position, but go and not just read the Bible and understand it, but go live it and go do it. Because if you're living the law of the Lord, then you are receiving so much more than you're putting out anyway because of the joy that you get from working with other people and seeing that in them. And so therefore you're more fruitful. So rather than spending your time with people who are judging you and telling you you are less than and not worthy and you shouldn't be there, go and, and be with the people who need your help, who you can show the love of Christ to, who you can live that message out with. And that's the way that you prosper and grow. And, and I just think that's beautiful. The one I read, oh, that was the King James Version. That's why. So the language again, you know, you see it's all that walketh and standeth and totally inaccessible language for us today. But I think that's a beautiful piece of scripture. And, and the Psalms, I never go to the Psalms very much. I'm not a big fan of poetry. So the Psalms don't always, you know, it's not something I go to. But um, I just think that's so beautiful that, you know, don't sit with criticism. Don't sit with people who, who tell you that you aren't worthy. Go do the work. Go do the work. Read the word and go do it is a much more powerful message for people to be able to live their lives fully. I think that's just a really good tip to read the scripture in different translations because there'd just be a word. Like, I know I do that. I always like read it in different ones and then choose. There's a word that's different is that, that ties it all together for me. So I think that's a good practice for people if you're reading to read it in like two or three different translations and see what it unlocks for you. Definitely, because you're just reading other people's thoughts on what was written, right? Is basically what you're doing. This is what I think it says, or this is the message I think it conveys. And another one, you know, I tell people when, they, when they're when they getting into this more is to read some commentaries. If they're confused, go read some commentaries on it. Go, go get a little bit of help and see where other people are going. And maybe that can guide you because sometimes you are confused with it. Sometimes you do kind of sit there and say, what is that saying to me? And, or what is it saying anyway? And, and how do I go with it? So there is a lot of people out there who've been in that same situation. So um, go find out what they're saying. What commentaries do you normally recommend to lay people? So I use feasting on the word and feasting on the gospel. I really love feasting on the gospel. And then I have a queer commentary that I always go to to see if it's got anything particular that I can highlight for people. So those are the ones I go to. And, and then I troll the internet too. I see what other people are, um, are saying about it because sometimes, you know, you just, you haven't got the words um, and, or you haven't got the inspiration. And I walk my dogs every day and I take my headphones and I listen to the scripture over and over in different, in different translations and different commentaries on it. Because just even if it doesn't speak to you, it speaks to what you don't yeah. want to say. Um, and that sometimes gives you the path to, oh, that's what I want to say, right? It's actually the opposite of what you're saying to me or a different angle on it. So yeah, I wish I had a more active covenant group so that I could talk. I know some clergy who, who are in covenant groups who literally go and do this together. 
And that must be really powerful to be able to to chat that over with people. So many of our listeners probably find themselves in, in your shoes or in places that I'm sure that you've been being hurt by the church, um, or even if they haven't, they've seen other people be hurt by the church, people that they love. And the fact that they're listening or participating in our community shows that there's something about God that they're still drawn to or, or community that they want to dip their toe in. What would you recommend for them to practice mm. for Lent? That's a good question. I think to try different ways of finding their connection with the divine and how that speaks for them. I think that during the pandemic, a lot of people because they were stuck at home and they started to go out walking and all of a sudden they were finding more spirituality in creation. And our churches don't provide that, right? We don't provide a way to get that. So maybe to explore those kind of things, like what does it mean if they take a walk and they see that as part of creation and themselves as part of creation, how does that change them and does that allow them to access God? Does a, a conversation with God doesn't have to be a prayer right it can just be a conversation how does that speak to you and community service right people are looking for community very much also since the pandemic and finding ways to serve that are meaningful to them may open up other avenues so i think all of those are different ways that people could go through lent as a journey themselves to find out what speaks to them and, and how do um, how do they start accessing and tapping into that yeah i think what you're saying denise that god is not confined to the walls of the church and as we shift our, the ways in which we understand scripture, I think we need to shift the ways we understand church. That church happens all over the place in all different ways. And what, what, like there, you can go surfing and that be church for you, or you can go for a walk or, and just all the ways that God is available to us doing the dishes, you know? So just exploring the ways that God is present in our secular sacred moments. I agree 100%. And one of the projects we're working on at the conference office is a shift truck. Um, and it's interesting you use the word shift. And this truck is shift because it moves, right? So it's shifting, but also shifting church to outside of the building because the pandemic got us outside and I am desperate to keep us outside of the building. So the concept of the shift truck would be that we would go to where the people are that do not feel welcome inside our buildings. So for example, to a pride event, or to Skid Row. And we would take the truck and we would take on it communion elements, you know, so there's an element of worship there, but also food, clothing, anything else that we need, but also licensed clinical social workers, somebody from LA housing, a medical professional. So we take the whole lot to them. So we're serving, we're worshiping, we're helping, and we're providing a form of church to those people who who can't come and sit in our pews because we haven't made them welcome. So, you know, I really want to do a blessing of the animals yeah. at the dog park. I'll take the shift truck and we'll also take the local shelter and get Petco to come and bring food supplies and people that will groom for nothing and, you know, that kind of stuff. So low cost vaccines and all the rest of it. Take the whole lot to the dog park and have a great party there. It's church, right? It's church, but people don't see it that as church. And that's, I think, a really exciting way and um, an opportunity that we're exploring right now. So That's awesome. I always wonder when that shift or if that shift will ever happen, because I feel like, you know, on, on this podcast and in our community and in and a lot of these progressive Christian circles, we talk about, you know, how the future of the church is so outside of these confined walls. But I, I don't know if that shift and so many people seeing it that way has happened yet. And I, I wonder when it will or if it will. Yeah, I mean, the problem is that the church is a capitalist organization yeah. right? that was developed during colonialism and it holds those values. 
And it's really, really hard to break those systems. Um, it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of determination. And the big question and one I ponder daily is, do you do it from inside the organization or do you do it from outside? Do you just try and change the organization and all the systems that it has that are there to protect itself? And those organizations will always have waste. So they will always have waste people as well as waste products, right? Or do you just say, no, it's too much. It's too much of a challenge. And you go outside and you start your own thing and you just do that. I'm very tempted by the latter a lot of the time and because changing systems is really, really hard. And I think it's going to take more than just us as faith leaders to do it. It's going to take community organizers and grassroots organizers and people like that to get on board and help us because, you know, we don't have all the skills ourselves. Some humility for us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is the question that we always kind of close out our time together asking, and I'm so curious your answer, Denise, as such a hopeful person. What is your hope for the future of the church? My hope is that the church will change, that the church will realize that it's not it's not accessible anymore. It's not relevant to culture and society anymore and that it needs to change in order to carry out its mission. You know, the mission of the United Methodist Church is to create disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And yet we're not transforming anything. And we need to be doing that. We need to be going out and, and doing that. So that's my hope. How we get there is the bit I don't know. Like I was saying, you either do it from inside or you do it from outside. That's my hope. And my hope is that the queer kids that grow up that get to see people like us. And not just the queer kids. I focus on that because we're so specifically excluded from church. But everybody who doesn't feel like they can walk into a building and be made welcome, that they see an alternative and a different way of, of accessing what is theirs and what should be available to everybody. So that's my big hope. Amen. Mm. Amen. Thank you so much, Denise. If people want to keep up with what you're doing, is there a way for folks to do that? Sure. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Denise Barnes, or on Instagram, Rev.Denise. I'm on Twitter also. And my email address is dbarnes at calpacumc.org. Yeah, reach out. I would love to to learn what people are doing, any ideas they've got, any resources they can share. I'm all about keeping in touch with people. So yeah, that would be great. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Together, we are what God looks like. The Collective Table is supported by San Diego United Methodist Church in Encinitas, California, and the California Pacific Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. A big thank you to our producer and content editor, Claire Watson. If you'd like to financially support the work of The Collective Table, please visit us at thecollectivetable.org. There you can also find out more about who we are and view past episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, YouTube channel, and newsletter. And keep up with us on our Instagram and Facebook at The Collective Table.